said, boy, it looks like they were doing a lot of work. They wanted me to go. I'm, I'm uh, really glad I stayed. So <laughs> don't tell them that. I can tell where all the people in Mexico sit because their spots are empty and I normally see them there. So if you are new here, I want to welcome you. My name is Ryan Grable. I'm the lead pastor here. We are in a series leading up to Christmas. We began it quite some time back. And we're looking at uh, these figures in the Old Testament that kind of allude to, the Bible would say that they are a shadow of the coming of Christ, right? The reality being Jesus, them being the shadow of what's coming, right? And so we started looking at these figures that we kind of in our heads go, oh, I know what that story is about. One of them is today. One of them is one that you... When you read this book of the Bible or you think of this book of the Bible, you will think of this one story or maybe two, and it will just be like, oh, that's what that book's about, but it says so much more. And so what we're looking at is Old Testament themes and narratives that are pointing down history for the need of Jesus of which he comes and fulfills. All of the Old Testament stories, I believe, our figures, our, our prophecies, all of, the, all of these unique stories point into one direction that Jesus comes and fulfills. Partially is why he fulfills so many prophecies, but he's also this uh, uh, embodiment of some of these archetypes in the Old Testament that Jesus then begins to live out in reality. Today, we are going to maybe shake it up a little bit, and we're going to just look at a character who we kind of just uh, put him in one box, but it's so much bigger, and that's the character in the story of Daniel. Daniel's a great figure. Now, typically, we don't link prophetically too many things to Daniel, except for a few passages that we'll, we'll, I'll explain a little bit that are pointing to something now and maybe even in the future but something greater is happening in the book of Daniel for, I, I think, really relevant for us as believers. Uh, he sets a tone. He sets an example of what it means to be someone who is faithful. So when we look at Daniel, we're going to examine his character. And he's one of these figures that you don't really see his end. You don't hear the story of how his life ends, but we know he lives a long life. Right? We look at his commitment. In Daniel, out of almost any character in the Bible, his commitment is very clear. You know where his loyalties lie. And I think it's a challenge to us as believers of asking some questions when we read about a character like this. Where do our loyalties lie? Really, I would say that's part of the big theme of the book. And, and, and ultimately, it answers a question that Daniel is... He, uh, he has his resolve on who he will serve. And that's the question I think ultimately all of us will walk out with and maybe be challenged with, is who, who will we serve? Because there are a lot of things we can serve. There's a lot of uh, uh, people even in our life we can serve in a way where we give them our heart more than we give God. Daniel is very, very clear on that. At the end of the day, Daniel is going to be asked this question, and, and, and his friends along with him, will you serve Babylon, which is the story and the time it takes place, or will you serve Yahweh? That's his big confronting issue. Which one will you serve? Where do your loyalties lie? Jesus came, and why Babylon's such a big deal, and you'll hear it actually referenced in the book of Revelation, because it's this, it's this symbol of human might, human power. And, and we'll have to choose of what we put above God uh, or will we put God above it. And so Jesus comes to establish ultimately his father's kingdom over mankind's kingdom. That's what Christmas is about, is the beginning of a kingdom that we're all a part of. You know, God's kingdom requires, I think, like a Daniel-like faith. I spent... Um, all a little bit of last week and all this week, just reading the book of Daniel over and over. And then I started looking at a lot of commentary about Daniel and just kind of bringing myself back into that story. And I think when I came out of it, I think I feel more inspired to be able to draw lines in my life. I, I think it's hard to draw lines for people. We, we talk a lot about this and, and therapy has done a great job for people to be able to go, I'm going to set a boundary for somebody. 
And you ever, have you ever set a boundary for somebody and they always say you knew it was a good boundary based on how hard somebody fights against the boundary that you needed that boundary. And so we have to do this in our life when it comes to the world like Daniel does of when we set a boundary, we do not cross it. We let the world know where we lie with our loyalties. So let's pray and then we'll get started. God, I ask as we dig into this story and we look at especially in the light of being a Christian follower of Jesus and what he came to bring, God, I ask that you just humble our heart because that's what, what we need is humility in, in service to you. And God, things will grab our attention. Things will want to put its affections uh, higher than, than you, God, but help us continue to draw the line and hold the line when it comes to our faith and what we find meaning in in life. Is it you or is it the world? But God, we just ask that you give us, as a church, as every person here who might be struggling with lines, whether they're crossing them all the time, God, I ask that you help them firm up that decision that they remain committed and they remain loyal in the midst of great temptation and great circumstances, God, that we hold the line. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. The first, the first time I was ever faced with a choice of, uh, of an either or, like choose one or choose the other, it wasn't like with dessert, it wasn't like with any of that. The first one that really made me agonize over was over a friend. Now, if you can transport yourself back to when you were a sixth grader, do you remember those days, right? Kind of. Oh boy. <laughs> Some of them have been long gone, right? But... I, I remember back when I was a sixth grader, it was my first time. I was in a new school. I had made a friend. Alphabetically, we became friends because I sat behind him in class, right? Do you know how this works? And all of a sudden, I'm becoming friends with him. His name is Mike. And Mike and I just start hanging out, and he's the only guy who kind of takes me in. But at the same time, I'm starting to slowly become friends with the, the, the I'll call him the king of another group, and his name was Dave. And Dave was like, hey, Ryan, we think you're a cool guy. We really like you. We think you're fun. You should be in our group. But here's the deal. And this is what was told to me when I was in sixth grade in a hallway when no one was there. He said, you need to do something. We like you, but we don't like Mike. So you need to drop Mike and you need to then come and hang out with us. But do not bring Mike with you anymore. And I was like, oh, do you, do you feel what I was feeling? Have you ever been there? Oh. And so I'm struggling, and I finally see Mike. He's in the bathroom, and it's kind of a weird place to do this, but I broke up with him in the bathroom, and <laughs> I went up to him, and I said, hey, it's not you, it's me. Like, I, I can't hang out with you anymore. And he, like, it was a weird moment. I'm not going to lie. He cried, and I was like, oh, no. He was like, why are you, what are you doing? Like, we're friends. I was like, we can't be friends anymore. I have to. Don't judge me. I was a sixth grader. I, want, I didn't know I had one friend. I wanted more. And so he, he cried and he just said, don't do this. And I was like, I, I have to. Like, it's done. Don't call me. Um, well, it was good, good talking to you guys. I uh, need somebody more holy up here to talk. Uh, I then just parted ways. I remember seeing him in the distance, and he'd give me the look, and I'd be like, no, Ryan, no, you stay with your friend Dave. And I became friends with great friends with both of them, and then Dave was actually disappointed when I made Mike my best man in my uh, wedding, uh, even though I hadn't been friends with him for so long. I owed that to him. I remember that choice of being so hard for me. We're faced with these types of choices all the time. Maybe not with friendships, right? Maybe it is. Maybe not with relationships. But we are faced with this when it comes to loyalty and what God would want or what we are tempted to give into. The same struggle you just all judged me for of the wrestling, which you did yourself, so don't. The, the, the same wrestling was for me when I was 19 years old. I was faced and confronted with another choice which was to continue to live the way I was living, which was definitely for myself or whatever was in front of me at any moment. I was becoming my God. I didn't believe in God, and so therefore I had become God to me. 
Whatever was in front of me, I chased it. Whatever, whatever I wanted, I went after it. And how I wanted to live, I lived. And then I heard the message of the gospel, and then I was confronted with a choice. I was confronted with something that made me draw a line. And I'll, I'll never forget how hard that line was to draw because A, I never wanted to be a Christian, and B, I never wanted to let go of the life I was living because it felt great to, to do everything I wanted to do in my life. But I did. I made the, I made the decision to make that, that, that choice. And that choice was so hard for me to make. Um, it, it's why I don't take uh, someone's faith lightly when they have chosen to be a Christian. I know what you give up when you do it. But nevertheless, that line needed to be made. I titled this message, Two Masters. And we're going to read a part of what Jesus is teaching. And I think it's good to really break down what he's teaching here. But I think this message, honestly, is very important for maybe this time of year. Not because we're talking about giving and receiving. Not because of uh, even just, uh, of just the spirit of the year, of like maybe recommitting your dedication to Jesus. But really about the opportunity of choices that lay before us even with New Year's. So what kind of person do we want to be? Someone who draws a line and says, I don't cross this line. I have loyalties and they, they, they are with God and not, not man. So I titled it Two Masters for the, uh, a passage I'm going to read. But really, ultimately, we have to realize this when we're looking at Jesus, especially with these shadows that are in the, New, in the Old Testament leading to him. He came to confront us with a choice. And that's what he presents to every single person here and has. And he'll present it to every single human being. We, will we choose life? Will we stand and be faithful even if it's difficult? or it's hard, or when temptation is great, will we hold the line? The differences between great wars, won or lost, are just whether the group of people are willing to hold the line. You know, we, uh, we have to be people of faith that are like that. Will we stand firm, or will we buckle and let the line be crossed? Jesus starts to read, and we, we quoted part of it last week, He's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He's addressing all these people. But he says something really interesting. We don't love this passage. I'm not going to lie. You're not going to like it either. I, when, when I read it, I'm like, because it, it's so relevant for today because it, it, it is the competing problem with people's loyalties of their heart. Uh, let's read it. Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moths and rust destroy. These words in the Greek, they mean this. That where things decay. How can you put all your trust in things that it will fall away? Don't put, things, don't put your trust, your loyalty, your affections, your time, your whole meaning of life in things that actually decay. And where thieves break in and steal. Man, I, 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 there's a guy in the church I really respect, and he was getting rid of things more than accumulating things as he's even in life gaining more financially. And I asked why, and he said, that's just more things I have to try to insure and protect, and I just need to get a little bit more simpler. I respected that so much because that's not the way we're taught in this world, is it, is it, right? We're taught that more, 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 more. And in our country, as wonderful as it is, uh, the temptation and maybe the promise we're given might be a false one. And people are always waking up to that reality when they see somebody who has great wealth uh, uh, decide to end their life because it didn't mean anything. It, it, they found actually that it was decaying. But things have become a God in those ways. You know, it's kind of one of those things of like, do you possess your property or does your property possess you? Everybody who owns a boat knows this struggle. <laughs> I, I, own, I own like off-road vehicles, and I'm not kidding you. I, I, I sometimes I feel like they own me, where it's like, now this, now I got to do this, and I got to take care of this. It becomes like a child. You have to take care of it and fix it and raise it and, 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 and nurture it, right? It, it, it is a question we'll always struggle. And this message isn't just about possession, by the way. This is about the end of the day, what captures our attention. Because what captures our attention is just where our heart will be. 
Verse 20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. This is a very common phrase said amongst, said amongst and written by many rabbis at this time. This is not original to Jesus. He's repeating a statement that, that has been said. And we don't even know what treasures in heaven mean. When someone would say, dude, I, hey, thank you for getting me my lunch. I want to get you back. I was like, no, no, no. I just, that's just a ruby in heaven for me. I don't know what treasures in heaven mean. I'm just making a joke about it. I have no idea. We have no idea. But heavenly minded seems to be where our heart should be. And that's where the treasure is at. It says, whether neither moth, where there neither moth nor rust destroy or where thieves do not break in and steal. Here is kind of the punch line of this text. For where your treasure is, your heart will also be. What that means, where your heart, especially in ancient Hebrew, amongst all of the generations, even leading into Jesus's, when they said heart, it meant your whole being. So where your treasure is, all of you is there. And, you know, it's easy to see that, I think, in certain ways when it comes to things in our life. I, I kind of think that some of the, you know, the three F's, you know what I mean, like faith and family and friends, where we're, we're they're at, or if you're around them in your life, that's kind of like, that's your treasure in your life. It's not a bad thing at all. But that's just where you are. So when you see somebody who's never around their children, but they're constantly always at work, you know where their treasure is at. When you see somebody who is constantly out in their social life, and they're forgetting their friends uh, or their family or even their faith, and they care so much, that's where their treasure is at. And so where your gaze is at and what has your attention is actually where your treasure is at. Your whole being is there. And he says... You know, when he says all, all right, your, your whole being will be there, your heart, it, that's where it will also be. If you think about every Christmas movie you've ever watched, what is, the, what is the struggle? It's the person realizing that they've wasted their life for things that are meaningless when the meaningful things are right in front of them all the time. You might be faced with this question right now in this season. Have I been wasting my life for the meaningless things when the meaningful things have been in front of me all my life? And I've just thought those were important. They rust, they die, they go away. But some things remain, especially the kingdom. Psalms 44, 20. David, David's an interesting character because, you know, I don't talk to God like David does. I probably should, but I don't. I just, I have this like old school weird way of like, oh, I don't want to say that to God. That's offensive. You know what I mean? David would just say, God, I don't know where you're at. I don't know where you've left me. I, I, I've done nothing wrong. And here's what he says. If we had forgotten your name, O God, or spread out our hands to foreign gods, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. I love that verse so much because he, in a way, is reminding God in some way that, God, I know that you know the secrets of my heart, but yet where are you? You know I haven't reached out to foreign gods. This is a great reminder of what Jesus is even saying of that when God knows your heart, like he knows it. You can't fake it. You can't pretend that you're a something and your heart is really something else. He goes on to say this a little bit more strongly in the next part of the verse in 22. And this is back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, the eye, of the, uh, the, the, the eye is the lamp of the body. Now, these are weird analogies, but they, they can make sense in a second. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Uh, we, we tend to look at it the other way. This is not how the, the ancient Hebrews thought about this at all. They, they thought about it in the reverse of which we do. So we think of it in the way of like, oh, whatever my eyes see, then it, it brings light to my life. And it's the opposite of what Jesus is talking about. He's saying what is on the inside will reflect the lamp of your, what you see. So where your gaze is, where your eye is, where you pay attention in this life, what matters to you in this life, the light of your eyes actually reflect the, what's going on on the inside. So where your eyes are is really stating how much light you have in you. And so he goes on to say this. I, I love it. He says, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
Meaning this, he's just making the correlation. People whose eyes are other places, you can make the assumption that there's not much light here. But people whose eyes are dark, you can make the assumption it must be very dark of what's going on inside of them. He said, how great is that darkness, right? You can see the inside of the eyes where we look, the people we look at and care about. The world, temptations, power, time, character. All these things reflect what light is going on on the inside. This is kind of a really good way to get yourself in check when it comes to works-based righteousness. A lot of times we'll be like, well, if I do this, I'm a good person. Have you ever been tempted to do something to look good? No. Oh, wow. Wow. Real responsive with my sins, but not yours. Okay. All right. Yeah. It's very tempting to look good, to, to make people think that you look good, right? And you can maybe fool everyone, but it's not what's reflecting on the inside. This is what will destroy workspace righteousness. The more we grow the light on the inside, the more that the eyes will reflect it. And it will be known and seen. Verse 24, no one, and no one, when Jesus says no one, means no one, can serve two masters. You cannot have them both. You cannot just have like, well, you today, you today. Jesus says you have to pick. Either one will hate, right, or he will hate the other one uh, or and love the other, meaning this. In, in these emotional terms like this, that's not how they were meant to be seen. This is ultimately just meant to be seen this way. You will either choose one and not choose the other, right? That's what that means. It doesn't have anything to do with love or hate here. The other, right, see, he will be devoted to one, meaning he will choose one, and he will despise the other, meaning he will not choose the other, person who is calling for his attention. And then he makes this massive statement. You cannot serve God in money. What, what most people believe, and I tend to too as well, is Jesus is picking up on what the competing idol is in the world to God. And that is money, power, security. And we find our meaning in these things. And he is calling it out very directly especially for some of the behavior he has been seeing happening amongst some of the followers. You cannot serve both. You have to pick one master. What he is telling them is it's not that money is bad. What he is telling them is we have an idol issue going on, and you cannot have both. I think so many times people have felt like, oh, well, then money is bad. No, absolutely not. But Jesus is saying, Listen, something is, is very easily elevated in our life. It gives us a sense of autonomy. It gives us a sense of power. We don't need as much faith as we used to. Now, I, have, you, have you noticed, if, as maybe even, I don't want to be like uh, invasive about this, but have you ever noticed as you've increased in your own ability to manage your own life, maybe even your prayer life has declined a little? I, I, okay, I'll, I'll be the one to say it. It has happened to me. But have you ever been so desperate? Have you ever been waiting and you're just like, oh my gosh, we could lose the house. We could lose. And you ever notice how much you start to pray then? Have you ever noticed that you feel so physically fit and strong, but until something happens and someone's in the hospital or you're in the hospital, you're just like, oh God, not today. Please God. Okay, I'll give my life to you. You make these statements to God. We have to be careful of, 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 of letting the things that give us power and strength and we can put our strength and identity into, never let them subvert God. And Jesus is reminding them very strongly, and I think always to the church we have to do this. The NIV commentary sums up everything I'm saying in a way I couldn't say it about this section. He says, what seems to begin as a prudent advice on long-term investment turns out to be a radical challenge calling for the reorientation of one's whole life. The identification and location of one's treasure turns out to be a matter of one's total self. It matters. It matters who is mastering our heart or what is mastering our heart. Jesus came to give us another choice. That's the beauty of Christmas. He came to give us another choice. 
We don't have to put all of our hopes and, and meaning and affection into the ways of which have been established throughout the world. By the way, I, I'm a big fan of history. And the more you read history, the more you realize the downfall of mankind. It's hard. Great things have come out, but it's crushing. And it's horrific with who wants what power when and who pays the price for that. He comes to give us another hope and another way we can, another place we can put our hope in affection, and find meaning. This is true. Humanity's life inescapably serves. Every human does. They serve something that gives them meaning. They do. And you, if, even if you're an atheist and you say, you know, I, I, I don't believe in anything, I don't believe in serve, you serve. Everybody finds meaning in something and they're looking to do it. They, the choice is not whether... If you shall serve or whether you shall serve, really the choice is what in whom you will serve. And that's what Jesus comes and draws the line for us. Many of us have made that decision. You have said, you know what, I will not cross this line. God is at the top in my life. My life is devoted to him. And some of us struggle with that. But Jesus made a way where there was no other choice. You had no other choice before this. You could try to be a really good person. But Jesus came and gave you a way and gave you a choice. It, it is this thing of every Christian has to resolve within themselves and settle. Will I be an indecisive Christian or will I be a decisive Christian? Do, will I make a clear decision or will it be just kind of murky decision? Um, you know, the, the, the thing that really I struggle with now, and it's become, it's, I never thought this would be an issue, is when I'm looking to find something on a streaming service, you know, this is a relevant thing, this is very relevant, is that I'm finding more time searching for things than I am watching things. Does anybody relate to this? Anybody? It's hard. I'm finding myself going like, ah, uh, no, ah, uh, no. And I'm getting in this really weird habit of indecision where it's like, oh, oof, I really want to watch that, but th no, there's got to be more, there's got to be more. <laughs> Okay, this is my struggle. I'm going through, and it's a struggle, and I will waste the entire time of maybe an episode trying to find something, and then I will just be like, well, that was good for today. That's unbelievable. It's like this indecision versus making a decision. I, I know that it's hard when it comes to our faith. We can feel like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, but Christ is calling us to make a decision in a firm one. The book of Daniel is so good because it, it is this shows what serving one master looks like. Yeah, he's got these cute little stories that we see in the kids' department. They'll talk about like, oh, he was petting all these lions, you know, or these guys were in a fire. <laughs> and they're cute stories. We should not remember them that way. This happened all the time. Like, no, these guys were terrified as they're getting ready to be executed for their faith. But the themes of the book are definitely faithfulness to a faithful God. If you remain faithful to a faithful God, you will come out winning. You choosing and not choosing. So many of us haven't made a choice about our faith so strongly. We don't know what to choose and what not to choose. You know, it's funny. I was telling someone this the other day. Uh, especially people who have a hard time saying no. Uh, the very first word we learn as children is no, but it becomes the most difficult word to say to people as we get older, is it not? Yes. We have to be willing to know what we want. We have to say yes to some things so we can say no to a lot of things. The book's also about fear. It's about power. It's about dominance and dominion, prestige, people-pleasing, wanting to fit in, trusting whether God or man is going to save us. And at the end of the day, it comes down to trust versus God's kingdom and versus putting trust into man's kingdom, mankind. And he's a prototype, I think, of what it means to serve a correct master, Lord, Savior, where we put our meaning and trust and faith into in the midst of despair. Chapter 1, I'm going to go through these really fast. I'm just going to tell you about the chapters because each story builds on the next. Daniel's taken captive. His homeland has been decimated. King Nebuchadnezzar, who is a real historic figure uh, of Babylon, destroys Jerusalem. 
destroys the temple and empties the temple out and takes all of the things they held most sacred and then makes a mockery of them all. And he takes all of the noble families, meaning noble meaning well-known, and takes them and brings them all to Babylon to make them servants. If you could read or write or if you were anybody who had some education, he took them because it was important to bring them into the court. And so he takes 10, 15,000 people, estimates say. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are part of that. Daniel's name in the book is not his name anymore. When a king would take somebody, the most important thing and the final nail in the coffin is they would change their name. You are no longer the name that you had. You are a new name. And it has significance the other way when it comes to Christ, our new creation, our new name, meaning that you are now under a new rule. But in this way, it was demoralizing and dehumanizing. To strip your name was the final thing. But David, or sorry, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not their names, they were taken into the court. And then all the young people, when they brought in, they were supposed to eat from the king's table. But Daniel knows that all of that food was sacrificed to idols. I cannot eat idols. Now here he is, this young guy, him and his friends, and they're all being made to absolutely sin against God. And they're like, no, we're not going to do it. So they plead and say, why don't we just eat what we eat, which is the Daniel fast, which, by the way, when I searched for a photo of this Daniel, all I saw was the Daniel fast. I was getting very annoyed. I was like, no, 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 no. Daniel, it's not more than a, a fad. So Daniel eats this food and says, listen, just let me eat it for 10 days. And why don't you get all the guys who are eating from the king's table and, and then bring us up there and then just compare how we look and how we think and how clear our head is. And then let the king make the decision from there. And then Daniel would have died for his choice if he continued, or the king would change. And the king changed and said, you know what? You guys look better, you look sharper, and you seem sharper. So yes, don't, you don't have to do that anymore. It's boldness to do that. It's such an insignificant thing. We could compromise on that and be like, well, what's a little meat from the idols? I'll pray. I'll bless it. God will, God will take care of it. I'll be fine as long as I can still live. But this is what character does. And you know this, when you make character decisions in small things, they, th that's why we pay attention to them so much, because then when it comes to big decisions, you'll make the right decision. So he makes a small decision. Chapter 2, the king has this dream, and he, Nebuchadnezzar is freaked out by this dream. But this is an impossible task. What he tells, he says, get all of the wise people, and Daniel's considered one of them, get all of them, all the learned people, bring them all before me, and I need them, <laughs> this never happens, I need them to tell me what my dream was, and then I need them to interpret the dream. And they all like, we, we can't do that. Like, we could hear your dream and interpret it, but we can't do what you're asking. Only a God can do that. And he says, if you cannot do it, everyone dies. And so they couldn't do it. They said they wouldn't do it. And then he goes and begins to execute tens of thousands of people. They're gathering Daniel, and he says, I will translate, and I'll tell him what his dream is. So he brings them into the court, and Daniel tells him his dream. This is the dream behind me. He sees this figure. Now, this is prophetic. So this actually takes place. I don't know when the book of Daniel was written, but we know enough that it, it goes even further than what da the writers even, or the writer of this book, wrote. So the head, Daniel, says, you had a dream of this figure. And that figure at the very top was a gold head, and that's you and your empire. And then below that silver, in these two arms, that's the Medes and the Persians. That's the next empire that's going to take over, and they did. And then below that's this bronze chest. And that's another empire that's going to take over the Persians, and that's the Alexandrian uh, Empire or the Greek Empire. And that takes over. And then below that is these legs of iron. And iron is stronger than every one of those materials, and it will crush everything else, and that's the Roman Empire. And then at the very bottom of the feet, there is this iron mixed with clay, and it's not strong. And that's at the very bottom of the feet. And that's the last empire. And it's really weird because we don't know how to interpret it. Is this for end times? Is this for now? I personally believe this comes with the moment that Jesus arrives. And he says, and then you saw a great stone that wasn't cut by human hands thrown and it crushes the statue from its feet and crumbles. And all that remains is this 
rock that grows into a great mountain that the entire world sees. Is this not a beautiful prophetic vision of what Jesus does? All empire now, every one of them, is now in light of what Christ has done from that moment on. And then he lavishes Daniel with praise and, and, and puts him in higher positions. Chapter 3, though, he decides after that, after that dream that he had the gold head. And he was like, well, why don't I just make a whole statue like that, all gold, that says no empire will rise, but it will only be my empire. And then he makes them all try to worship it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say, we're not worshiping it. So then they take them, the very uh, smelting cave that they forged all of that gold in. They're like, turn it up, throw them in, 10 times hotter. They have to worship this. And they don't. And then it kills the people who throw them in. And then they live. And then he sees inside, the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, sees inside and says, why is there four people in there? Some would say, he says, he looks like the, a son of God. But we don't know who that is. We really don't know what, or, or what figure this is. But they come out unscathed, and then he changes his life. Wow, there must be a greater God. There must be something bigger. You'll watch Nebuchadnezzar through a few kings, up and down. God is great, and then, oh, no, power is better. We, we know the struggle. The, the book lays it out so well. We know the struggle of things are going, things are going uh, uh, really bad, or I just realized God is so great, and then we get caught up in our own glory. Chapter 4, he has another dream, but this dream comes because he looks around at his kingdom and he says, I am like a god. Now, at this time, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon was the jewel of the entire world. Everybody wanted it. He had this great kingdom, and he said, look at how great I am. God gives him a dream. This time he doesn't want someone to tell him what the dream was. He wants someone to give him a favorable interpretation. And so he calls everybody in and says, this is my dream. I saw a great, great tree the world would see and everybody envied. And it had a, a bronze rope around it or bronze uh, belt, which was, would be, represent him. And it was cut down. But a root was left for a chance for repentance that it could grow again. But if not... Seven years will pass, uh, and, and the king will become basically like an animal. And it happens. Daniel interprets it and says, dude, this, this, this dream should be for one of your enemies, but i got to tell you the truth. You're going to be cut down, and you're going to be laid low. He gets laid low, but then after repentance, after seven years, he comes back. By the way, this is even historically noted in other writings. And so he then comes back to himself and becomes a king again. And you know what's fascinating about this? Even such a great thing like that. We've had miracles happen in our life, but yet we'll still turn our back on God. We've had amazing things happen, yet we'll still put our affections in other things. It's, it's a struggle, I think, of humanity. This is what King Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel 4. Oh man, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor uh, uh, the king of heaven. And all of his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he will humble. This is like that moment of like the come to Jesus moment a lot of people have, and then but maybe soon forget. Jesus tells this parable, and you know the parable of the sower. He sows on good ground, rocky ground, all that. And we're like, I want to be good ground. Well, one of the most telling ones and that, that is very linked with like this Nebuchadnezzar journey and temptation of, of, of masters it's in verse 13, Jesus is interpreting his own parable. He says, and for what was sown amongst the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but cares of the world and the deceitfulness of the riches choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. This is what we see in happening in Nebuchadnezzar in Kings. And there's two more I'll talk about and then I'm done. Chapter five, in, in, it's a, in the king, right, he's Come through, he's praising God, but then he invites all of his friends over sometime later, gets full of himself again. Riches are choking out the good thing that happened in his life. And he says, bring all those Jewish, you know, sacred cups and bring them all up here from the temple. I want to drink from them in a mockery to his domination over the world. And then he has, uh, in that moment, a hand appears on the wall in the story. And it writes these words, 
Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And he doesn't know what it means, and he's freaked out. He's asking all these people what he means, and someone says to them, hey, there's this wise man named Daniel who advised your father, and, 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 and I want you to bring him in because he might be able to tell you what it means. And so Daniel comes in, and this is what Daniel tells him. He says, it means it's over for you. And this is what he said. It's over for you, many, many, and you've been weighed, and you fall short, tackle, and then be prepared to be conquered, parson. And that's exactly what happens. That very next day, the king of Persia, Cyrus, launches his attack and destroys Babylon and kills King Nebuchadnezzar, the junior, and then sets everybody free, right, to back to Israel. The thing is, is this is a good example of someone who remains strong in the midst of revelation and truth, Daniel and his friends, and then someone who has a moment but loses sight because the world is so distracting to them. Chapter 6 is Daniel's almost demise. A new king takes over. And somehow Daniel gets tricked into, or the king gets tricked into saying, anybody who worships another god, we're going to kill him. And Daniel is, and they tell on him. And they want him out because he has a lot of prominence in Babylon at the time. And so he, the king doesn't want to throw him in there. They say King Darius. I don't know if it was King Darius. Uh, Persia. And then he throws them in a lion's den. This is the famous story. But what happens is, is Daniel is one who remains faithful no matter what. Just like back in the day, he would not bend the knee to anything greater than God, uh, putting anything greater than God, only to God. And again, he's rescued by God. It's a story of the faithful and serving a faithful God. I, I know these are old stories, but they're pointing to something. And they're pointing to I think really us as believers, what does it look like to serve Christ, right? It's a shadow of what we are experiencing in our life, serving the reality of Christ, but then remaining faithful. You know, I wanted to teach a really encouraging message about having faith will deliver you from problems, but I, I think that this is an important message for our church, is that remaining faithful no matter what, serving the right master, in, in, in getting our priorities correct. One last story, and it's the rich young ruler. You know the story. He says to Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And he runs up to Jesus, and he's, he's like, well, you know, do you do this? Do you do this? You know, some of the commandments, do you do this? And he says, I have practiced them all from my youth. Listen to how Jesus approaches him. And he said to him, Right, teacher, I've done all these things. I kept them for my youth. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. And this is where truth with love matters. A lot of Christians will give a lot of truth, but no love. Have you ever gotten the other end of that? I've been given that, where it's like, ooh, there's no love in that. But this is true. He looked at him with love, and he said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. The bummer is he's faced with that line, that decision. And disheartened by saying, by the saying, he went away sorrowful and he had great possessions. Jesus looked around his disciples and said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, meaning that those who have the temptation to this idol to put their their life in it, their meaning in it, their security in it, who, they're, who they are, their identity in it, how difficult it is for them because it's so, it's so easy to do. And the, and the challenge for us is to, to, to look at this rich young ruler and learn. I think a lot of us would say, man, I wish I was back in Jesus' day. I, could fo I would follow him no matter what. Right? We would. We would. Oh, I'd be nailed to him right next to him on the cross. I, oh, I would follow him anywhere. I can't believe those disciples deserted him. How dare they? Like, but, but we have to place ourselves right in the exact same spot and, and in that same tension. What master will you serve? Jesus lovingly pointed out that something has your heart, and can you let it go? And he couldn't do it. He came to bring a choice, Jesus did, worshiping God or the world, worshiping gain, or worshiping God. 
choosing eternal things or temporal things to put our life and trust into. A choice, I think, uh, all who hear, hear the gospel, anyone who hears the gospel has to make this choice. I don't think that when someone chooses, I heard the gospel so many times growing up, and I just was like, eh, I just was really good at getting rid of it. Like, oh, get that away from me. <laughs> you know what I mean? I did not want to hear the gospel. It doesn't mean that I was worthless. It just means that eventually the gospel hit me in such a place, in a time in my life, or whatever it was, that, or I was ready, that I became good ground. But it doesn't mean you should stop sowing. You should still cast the seed. Still share the gospel. God will never give up on anybody. And we should still continue to do it. And also in your life, if you've been someone who's just like, oh, I, I, I don't know, I'm not committed yet. That's okay. Work towards becoming good ground. Let God do the work in your heart to eventually become the ground that it gets planted in. Why did Jesus come? I think that's a good question. So that we can serve the right master. That's why he came. Before Christ, I was serving the wrong master. I was serving the wrong person. I had the wrong Lord of my life. And so did you. But now we're serving the right master, Father, Lord, and we're in the right kingdom. I'll close with this. I have four questions. These are just four questions I think everybody should ask in light of this. You can write them down, um, and they might be helpful, or, or just uh, even if it's just ask me later, and I'll give them to you again. Do you see your choice as clearly as Daniel did, or is it foggy? When push comes to shove, do you see your choice as clear as Daniel? Do you hold the convictions that Daniel had? Or is it still a little murky when it comes to what you will put your trust, meaning, life in? Are your eyes illuminating the brightness within you? Like, meaning, the, the, the work that's on the inside, this light that's so bright on the inside, the, the love of Christ, is it reflecting in what you, where you spend your life and what you're doing and how you, put, what you, how you put your hands to work, what you care about. Is it reflecting in these ways? I think we have to ask these, uh, ourselves these questions. Do you waver on whom you serve at times? I have. I have. It's a struggle where I'll be really struggling to, to not cross that line. I'll be really struggling when things are really, really tough not to bow before another God. I have to put my trust in something else that will save me other than prayer or what God can do? Do you waver at times? And maybe are some of us wavering now? And the last question is, like the rich young ruler, is there anything in your life, if Jesus could call it out in your life, that he'd say, this is holding you from full devotion to me. This is holding you back. Is there anything in your life? And then you probably have to ask the bigger question, am I willing to release it? I don't think Jesus wanted this man to be poor. I don't think he cares about money. I think he wanted this man to be free. Is there anything that's holding you from total freedom and trust and putting your full trust in who Jesus is in the kingdom of God? Doesn't mean that you... you and listen, I ha always have to say these things because I think they're important because people can take it wrong. You can be wealthy and, and, and hold God at top priority. That's not what it means. This is your heart. And the battle for your heart has been waged since the time you were young. And something wants your heart other than, and wants it away from God and to itself. And I don't know what that is. I can't fully explain it. And then there's God who is warring for your heart. If there's anything in your life that is holding you back from full devotion to God that Jesus could say, that thing right there, if you could let that go, you could be free. But if it possesses you, you will be bound. Doesn't mean you can't be a Christian. It just means that you're bound and you are in need of freedom in that area. Could you guys bow your heads? I know I, I, it was a little bit more of a serious message. I feel like in the series, this is the one that, that, that I needed to do. But it, it, it's so important in our life to refocus to sit down and get grounded in, in, in the truth. And I hope you, you hear it in love. 
and I hope that you feel like you're not just some horrible person or that, that, that everybody else here does so much better than you. That would be a lie you're telling yourself. Everybody here is at a place where they're constantly being tested against the line of who they hold their devotion to. But I want to encourage you, and Daniel's this great example that we can look to and go, what, 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 how did Daniel handle that? He was a great, great model. Like many people in faith and people around you who continually say no because they know what they've said yes to. But if there's things in your life that are holding you and you think actually that they give you meaning but you don't, might, might not realize they're actually keeping you bound from to, total freedom and letting go. It could be money. It could be relationship, a relationship that's not healthy for you. It could be so many things. It could be even the, the, the hopes that we place in, 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 in politics. It could be the hope that we place in, in, in structures and institutions. It could be all of these things. But what has got you held back? What would Jesus point at and say, why don't we let that go? Why don't we let that go today? And then follow me without being hindered by this thing and let it go. They're usually things that will rot, decay, won't last, temporal. Don't let that give you meaning anymore. Be free. God, I ask that every person in here is seriously contemplating that question. And maybe feels you tugging on their heart about that area in their life that they're hanging on to. That area that holds them back from full devotion, full commitment. There's no hesitation when it comes saying yes to you, God. Maybe this thing that's holding them back from that or the thing that's given them meaning. Maybe it got them through a time, but now it's become an anchor holding them back. God, I ask that they, in these moments, maybe even right now, give that to you and release that to you. Give it away. God, things that we've maybe held, and we don't call them idols, but Jesus is using money because it can be an idol. Things that can become idols in our life that subvert you, God. Help them tear them down in their life. They mean nothing in the long run. The God, that we get a heavenly perspective and not just a temporal perspective. I ask that you bring freedom in this room and freedom in our lives. That even today, as people are walking out and they're going home, that they'll feel free from something that's, that, 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 that they thought was giving them what they wanted, but it wasn't. It was binding them, God. I ask that you just set them free so they can experience you in a real, relevant, new way that they can be fully devoted to you. And God, I'm excited about the people who have let these things go and what that will do in their life, how they'll flourish in the areas of their life that you've always wanted for them. So we thank you for that, God. We love you. Just like you took care of Daniel, you will take care of them. You will never leave them. You will never forsake them. You will always be with them. We love you so much, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me this last song?